Welcome everyone to the fourth episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, how's it going, man? It's good. It's um, it's starting to warm up a bit, so it's starting uh, start to feel better in general. It is, even though it? even though the market's being a bit odd, you can't really complain with the weather. It's you know it feels good to be outside now. Yeah, especially yesterday. I mean, it was a beautiful day. Got some groceries done. I actually went to Walmart yesterday, and um, the lineup was pretty short. And then as soon as I got into the line, it just started filling up. And yeah. I was thinking to myself, I was like, "Wait a minute! Like Walmart stock, perfect example. This is what Peter Lynch talks about: buy what you know, right?" Uh, so it was just really cool. And like you walk around, and like they kind of have everything kind of mapped out. So it, it, it's an yeah. interesting concept. Um, so anyway, really good day yesterday. Today's going to be a little bit cloudy. That's okay. But we're going to focus on a topic that doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention in our industry, actually. Um, women in finance. And we're, we've got a special guest on, uh, coming up. She's, uh, a pretty much a, she's a base. And, um, you know, she's, she's a beast. Got, she, she's a beast. She's a beast. She's got grit. And uh, we'll get into that. But Nick, why did we want to bring this on as a topic of discussion? So there's women have like women need to understand that in capitalism, in terms of the economy, you make up half of the population because you make up half of the population. Your economic input is so valuable, just as valuable as a male's counterpart. In terms of as a, an economic agent, as an individual, you are equal to us men. We both have the same upside potential. It doesn't matter if you're a man, it doesn't matter if you're a woman. The capitalistic landscape allows any gender to do what they need to do to make money, to invest. It doesn't matter which side you're part on. It just seems that the male side, where they tend to be more risk on or seems to attract them to the investment and finance landscape women a little less but women have to understand that there's two crazy trends that are building up that make it important for you ladies to to care a lot more about your money than ever before one you're live you're outliving most men which is important it means that you will have to care about your finances individually and we'll be able to have a male counterpart take care of that for you and the second one is that if currently statistics show that m- roughly half of marriages end up in a divorce, I would bet that in our generation as millennials, that number will only increase. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on that front. I mean, like, you know, the amount of people getting, you know, it's, 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 it's crappy, but a lot of divorce, like the divorce rates are going through the roof now. And, um, one of the examples of that is, um, and again, I'm not trying to generalize here. I think this is just from a very objective viewpoint, but it seems like you know, there's just like that, there's a certain portion of that group where the women become so reliant on the male to yeah. basically provide for everything, right? Yeah. So, so one of our guests, uh, Fred Pai, he used to work for Fidelity Investments, which is a relatively a well-known investment fi- uh, company and it's, they're big. They did um, their own little study and they found a significant percentage of women answered financial questions with, I do not know, which yeah. is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, the National Institute of Retirement Security found that 80% uh, that women are 80% more likely to be impoverished in retirement. And that uh, statistics show that women are more likely to hold cash than investments. And, and as we, 
Yeah. As we know, cash is a depreciating asset exactly. in the form of basically an investment, right? In the long term, holding hoarding cash, unless you're a billionaire, I get why you may want to hoard some cash. For sure. But if you're not a millionaire, if you're if you're just trying to build up your wealth, hoarding cash in the long run, you're only losing value. Your money's not working for you. And that's where a lot of women see the thing is a lot of women are killing it now. They're killing in school, they're killing with their education, they're entering the workforce. They're doing what they got to do to become an independent woman. But the key to maintaining that independence and building that, indep that, that freedom from their male counterparts, uh, just being free in general, you need money. You need to build that money. Money gives you freedom to choose and do whatever you want, regardless of who you're with. Exactly. And I think the other thing too is our, our guest speaker brings a very interesting perspective with regards yeah. to investing, right? Um, the only way you're actually going to learn it is by actually trying it, like doing trial and error. You know, that's kind of how I got started with, with day trading. It was all about trial and error. Same thing for you, right? You're only going to, you're only going to learn if you actually do it. So, um, the fact what I would say, and this is what's been working for me right now is this, you know, most ladies that are listening to this right now, if you've got a job, you've got an income coming in, that's amazing. Maintain that. But at the same time, take the time maybe on weekends to figure out, okay, what does my budget look like? What does a financial plan look like? And then maybe try with investing in that. And that's why I brought yeah. up the Walmart example, because this is exactly how really long-term investing works. Um, you buy companies that you know that you're familiar with because over the long term, those ones are the most, most likely that are going to sustain, uh, you know, any type of type of growth and provide some return on, on, on equity for that cash, uh, that would normally be sitting in a debt account. Um, the, yeah. other, the other thing that I would say though, is, you know, our guest speaker or our guests on the show, she, first of all, incredible resume, um, absolutely grown their Instagram presence. Like their whole business now was grown on social media. Right. And we know that, you know, women are actually a lot stronger. I find personally at growing a page, right They're, They allow for that creativity. So they like the, 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 the beauty of some of the characters that make a woman fantastic is that they like to connect with people. Exactly. And that, that, that desire to connect with your end user, with your customers, with your clientele, it, it's a value asset. You could feed off of it. And a lot of women nowadays who want to come up with all their own little businesses, but they're not thinking of themselves as a business or they're not thinking of the business as an investment opportunity. They're not putting themselves to as much work as they can, you know, and they're depending. Like, so now, now that we're talking about this finance thing with women, there's another, there's another one that's, that talks about how compared to the older generations, millennial women seem to depend more on their male counterparts with all financial matters, which is a bad thing because if you're going to outlive the man and you're going to, let's just say that the odds are against your marriage lasting, not when I'm, I'm not talking about the marriage aspect. I'm just talking in terms of securing or hedging your financial position. If you come out of your marriage divorced and you had no control of your money and you're 45 years old and you have no idea what happened to your money, where your money's been putting to work, at 45 years old to now have to restart or to now start caring about your money, it's not that you can't, it's just that you have a big uphill. Right. And that's that, you know, you, you don't need to complicate that, right. In a sense that, oh, you shouldn't be starting to like, you know, buy options or buy, you know, crazy type of investments. No, like stick to the basics, understand, understand what a business is, 
help if you have a business grow that business and i, and I know a lot of you know friends of mine who are girls who, who work hard they're you know they're, they're very successful at what they do but when you ask them about investing it's like oh like I fidelity like, like fidelity settles i don't know yeah, exactly. It's like there's no in investment objective. I find in the short term, okay, you're doing well. You've got that cash flow coming in. You're creative. You're networking. You're doing all that stuff. But in the long term, if you don't, if you, like you said, if you only get to 45 or 50 and that's when you start paying attention to it, the, the future value that you could have obtained between now and when you're up to 45, that's gone right? That's time. Yeah. And it, and I know it's such a cliche. Everyone talks about time. It's like time is a valuable resource. It is like, it is your most valuable resource. So, um, now's the time to start learning about that stuff. And, uh, again, our, 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 guest, she, she talks about that. She talks about the successes that she's had, what she's looking to do with her business. Um, yeah, check them out. We're going to dive right into that right now. Um, she's the CEO of grit capital, check them out on Instagram and, um, they're, you know, they're disrupting the investment banking space and the, you know, the small cap, medium cap space as well. So, uh, Nick, one last thing you want to say before we, we jump right into the, uh, the interview. Ladies in finance, we're all equal. So there's no, uh, there's no sex in this. It's just, it's all about money. We, I don't care. You'll, as you'll see with this lady, Jen is a beast. Yeah. yeah. Ignore the fact that she's a woman and she knows what she's talking about. She's smart. Just don't be afraid to enter space. Yeah. It's all about risk, right? Take a little yeah. risk right now. So guys, enjoy this interview and uh, we'll see you soon. All right, we've got uh, an interesting theme this week on the podcast. Um, we're going to be focusing on women in finance, and we've got a very special guest here to today to really focus and talk about her career, while also talking about more of the challenges and obstacles, as well as opportunities that are in the uh, the, the finance industry. So. Um, She's actually the CEO of Grit Capital, which is a boutique capital market advisory firm focused on engaging a new generation of investors. Um, she was a portfolio manager for seven years, managed the best performing small cap fund in Canada in uh, 2009, 2010, and 2014. Uh, she also received her CFA in 2011 and holds a level one chartered market technician designation. It's the CMT. And she worked for a $600 million asset management company based in Toronto from 2008 to 2016. She holds a bachelor's of science in neuroscience with a minor in economics and attended the Harvard Business School Executive Education for Private Equity and Venture Capital. And she's also been featured in the Globe and Mail, National Post, Vice, and BNN Bloomberg and happens to be a very avid skier, tennis player, and golfer, as well as a wake surfer. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Genevieve Rock Dector. Thanks for having me. I didn't realize we are gonna get the full detailed <laughs> intro. That was wonderful. Gotta, gotta enhance the credibility. I mean, you're the right person really yeah. for us to really get into this topic. I think it's Absolutely. really interesting. So um, maybe you could just tell the listeners too, uh, how you really, fell in love with sort of this industry and talk about what you've done up until date. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been in the industry for oh, almost 15 years now. And 
it was a passion for entrepreneurialism that really got me started. Um, and I had the luck that my father was actually in the finance industry, although he tried to prevent me from not entering it. I told him that I wanted to come for one summer after university. I was just going to stay for the summer. And then I was the summer student that never left because uh, as I dug deeper into what Bay Street, uh, what Bay Street and Wall Street was offering and that the fact that you could learn about every type of industry and yeah. every size of company, it really had my creativity and imagination flowing. And yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I'm a millennial, I've got ADD, so. <laughs> I'm really on you with that one. I, I find it's like a database of information. Just anything, anything you're curious about, as long as you have an investment's perspective, you can narrow in on any industry and any passion you have, but from an investment perspective, without actually having to do the work yourself. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, getting the CFA designation and understanding, um, you know, balance sheets and financial statements, I knew that that would be invaluable for me, especially as I moved out of the family business, because I thought, okay, well, no one's going to. No one's going to believe me that I know what I'm doing unless I have this designation. So I did it. And I have to say like now, you know, 15 years later after analyzing so many companies, like I used to meet with three or four companies a day when I ran money and, you know, just tearing apart, you know, uh, their decks and the management teams and questions. And like, I'm on CDAR, which is like the place you go to, to look yeah. at financial statements all the time now. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't put in the time. So it's the whole like Malcolm Gladwell thing. You really have to put in, all of the time to get to, to a place where you can add value for, for the whole ecosystem. Just to ask you something for that. So when this was when you're dealing with the money specifically, you're meeting a lot of companies, this is when you were dealing with the small cap industry, right? So you probably, you, you saw a lot more companies burn or kind of prolong capital and never really build anything than companies actually succeed in that sector. Cause that's a, that's a sector that's, you really need to do a lot of due diligence. Oh yeah. Like the batting average in small caps is like for every company that succeeds, there's like a thousand, if not yeah. 10,000 others that have tried. And, and that's at the stage like I was looking at public companies. So underneath that, there are, you know, millions of private companies that go yeah. uh, belly up every year. So yeah. you really have to go the extra mile, especially because a lot of them don't have revenue models yet. Yeah. So they're kind of just like hopes and dreams. 100%. So it's a lot more speculation. And that's the thing. A lot of people love, I feel like a lot of people that come into just start off in stocks because that's how they enter it. It's, I'm going to touch a small cap because the cheaper, the better, or the bigger the opportunity, but they don't realize so much more work. Like that's how I started off. Marijuana was my entry for both me and Dan, like yeah. small cap, you know, like speculation, especially before Canada, you know, was okay. Trudeau's talking about legalization. It's an opportunity. We know everybody our age smokes. So my perspective was, you know what? Let me see who we can start touching. There was Canopy, there was, you know, Aurora started. So it's like, it became just kind of like a speculation play before we really got in and it just developed on the idea. But if there wasn't marijuana, it was in an industry that was pure speculation to develop, you lose all your money. But yeah, you have I to think, maintain and... Yeah, very spe speculative industry. And obviously a lot of people made a lot of money and then lost yeah. a lot of money. I think the good things that came out of it is like what you're describing. It did bring in a new audience it brought in a new yeah. investor base 
And, you know, I love seeing these memes on Instagram that'll post like, instead of buying these, invest in this. And it's like, yeah. instead of buying like another pair of Nike shoes, yeah. why don't you invest in Nike? Instead of buying an iPhone, why don't you invest in Apple? It's like, yeah. I think the, uh, you know, the, the cycle of consuming constantly by millennials, they need to spend that money and save it and invest in the market and their education. I'm a, a big proponent of that. 100%. I can't agree with you more. It's, it, it, and those are, those are coming more prominent too on Instagram, right? And um, one of the things that I think most millennials are, are on right now is social media. It's not even a question at this point. I think, you know, the current situation that we're in has kind of made like the staple or the, like the, the exclamation point to the shift into the information age. Um, and you've done a really good job with your partner as well, Nicole, um, building a really unique business. So can you maybe just talk about that and the successes that you guys have had uh, in, with Grid Capital? Yeah, so when I was uh, managing money, I realized that I was, I was missing one skill set. And that skill set was I hadn't spent any time actually behind the scenes with companies like as they were being built. So I couldn't kind of see the forest from the trees. And what I mean by that is like when a CEO would come in and pitch to me and say, these are my projections, like hockey stick growth. I didn't have the ability to understand the human side of a business. And so when I left managing money, I teamed up with my best friend, Nicole, and she had been doing what's called investor relations. So that's when you work inside of a company with the management team and you help them connect with investors. But what it gives you is a real look into how a company is run on the inside and the difference between like what a management team says and does, because what they tell investors is often very different than what goes on behind the scenes. It's very unpolished. And as you know, like growing businesses is a, is a messy thing. So as I've done this for four years, we've worked for, with dozens and dozens of small cap companies, private and public. Um, I think I've actually gotten way better at investing because I can kind of siphon through some of the bullshit a little better. So more the psychology. So you like the psychology part of investing in businesses. Yeah. A, okay, go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, that plays, and in okay. small caps in particular, yeah. that plays a much more important part than in large caps where the information flow is way more efficient. Like you have a lot of analysts covering it. Yeah. You have a lot of, um, you have a lot of, sorry, I'm just going to turn my email off. You have a lot of um, people analyzing the company. So things are less inefficient. Yeah. Whereas in small cap land, it's like, whoa, like you, yeah. there's a lot of inefficiencies. So, you so those, to, there's a question I want to build. I'll ask you like, kind of like your experience when you're looking at um small cap companies especially because i know obviously small cap management is a necessary aspect of it because they have to deliver on a, on a potential idea clearly if they were already there they wouldn't be seeking base investors so when you're studying the management team do you find that a lot of small cap companies have a very short horizon on the value of the stock rather than thinking long and just focusing long rather than just ignoring the volatility going on in the stock market especially since i think small cap is even crazier than ever before yeah, that's like a big pet peeve of mine is when the management team is overly focused on marketing and seeing investors. And that really turns us off. Like we, yeah. you know, you don't need to be marketing more than once a quarter. Like you need to have your head down and you need to be building your business and you need to be consistent about the direction of your business. When you come back- the price from will come. Yeah, have like three key things, three key, key KPIs and don't change your story. Um, there's such like- um, kind of a terrible thing that goes on in Canadian capital markets. And I'm sure it's the same in the U S it's where there's all these promoters and they're not building real companies and you really have to avoid all that crap. 
because you can really lose a lot of money on it. Perfect. Those. I like to see there's kind of like an agreement on that one because that's something I've been noticing over the last year. Like a lot of companies, either the way they talk or they respond to movement in the market is, oh, you know, like I'm not even focusing on the volatility. I'm focusing long play. Like I'm trying because then if you look too much at your stock and you know you bought at two dollars and now it's worth fifty cents, it eats you up inside. And then it's what do I do to just bring my stock up right now? Oh yeah, you mean from the investor standpoint? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's that famous quote by Warren Buffett: "If you're going to buy something um, and you can't own, like, if you're thinking of buying something and you can't stomach it for the next ten years, and they'll buy it. Like, that's yeah, what exactly. you really have to be in it for the long run. On the large cap side, on the small cap side, it's like there's a lot of times where you can make a lot of money, but you need to know when to get out. Yeah, it's easy to buy a stock; it's the hardest to sell it, especially with small caps, right? Yeah, yeah. Even uh, Eric Sprott, who's like a huge mining investor, I was reading about him. Yeah. yeah, like he he's like a big proponent in cutting your losses. Like if you're invested in some, you know, small mining company and it hasn't moved and it hasn't done what it's supposed to, like even if you're down 50%, at some point you have to cut your losses and move on because there's also opportunity cost to that capital. You could be doing yeah. something else sure. with it. So Did, just to have, have some you discipline. Have you ever heard of, because uh, this is my biggest loss, the, was uh, LTV Leonovis Technologies. So they, they were they were part of Alpha Fund also. Yeah, I met the CEO. I think his name was Michael. It's a uh, yes, something like that exactly. Garrity something. Mike, yeah, I met him yeah. back during the blockchain days. Uh, yeah, when they exactly. Were doing blockchain. Yeah, actually, that that was my biggest loss. The story changed. Technology was way too ahead of its time. They weren't delivering on pipelines when they were we were one quarter in, two quarters in. So I had taken out my tranche at a certain point. And then I saw, okay, you're not delivering one quarter in, second quarter, you're still not delivering. So I said, I'm out. Like something's not going wrong. You're, you haven't delivered nothing on a pipeline for two years. So I just got out and it turned out exactly the way I thought. They couldn't deliver. They had to restructure the business operation because the idea that they were trying to build was too ahead. People weren't catching on to the idea of building a crypto, like a blockchain ecosystem where they could sell kind of like Airbnb style cloud infrastructure. So you can rent out space that you're not using, but it was too beyond and they had to restructure and refocus their operation because they were just yeah. bleeding cash. And that's a great point. I mean, you have to really think, is this ahead of its time or is this on the cutting edge? You need to know the difference and that takes a lot of practice to figure out. It's clearly. The, my, the thing was that is I didn't understand the space so much and it was just starting to come out. So blockchain was still something like, kind of newish, especially if you weren't in it from a retailer perspective. So as much as I was following the sector, it was the idea was fantastic, or at least it, it seemed fantastic, but the time was just not right for it. Yeah, so, really. yeah exactly. Really. What was one of the biggest challenges as, because the, do you agree that the sector is fam mostly male dominated? Yeah, finance um, in general, business in general, venture yeah. cap in general, all still pretty male dominated, I actually just read this crazy stat before we got on this podcast. Um, so last year in VC world, so venture capital, Silicon Valley, uh, 3 billion was raised by female led entrepreneurs, uh, but male entrepreneurs raised 130 billion. So female led entrepreneurs only 3% of the market. That's a huge discrepancy. Yeah, it's crazy. So do you, what was, what like if you were to if you were to tell a, a young millennial my age because i'm 27 down 27 who because I, I see a lot of girls trying to start up their little businesses now like 
I feel like they're not taking on risk or they're not being aggressive enough or they're not realizing that there's a market, you can fill it. You just have to push. Like, what are some of the psychological variables that you need to develop to kind of push further as an entrepreneur, especially as a woman? Um, as, I don't know. I never looked at it that way. I never thought of myself as, you know, I have to be have to be different because I'm a woman. I think maybe because I grew up in the industry and because it has a natural tendency to be like, I I like to say I was raised by wolves. Like the finance world makes you a bit tough. It makes you, and that's why, to be honest, I named our company Grit Capital is like, no matter if you're a woman or a man, like it is, it is a very doggy dog world. So like you have to roll your sleeves up, you have to get in there, you have to fight for what's yours. And I think that applies to anybody. I think women in the industry, when they appear too tough, like, you know, you get kind of a, a bad name, the same behavior that a guy might do if a girl does it. Oh, she's called a bitch. You know, it's like that same thing for sure happens. Uh, but you kind of look past it. I'm one of those people that thinks like if you focus on a problem, then it is a problem. If you focus on a solution, then you'll find a solution. So you don't really dwell too much on like the male versus female thing, but the stats are definitely not in our favor. Um, and that'll change. That'll change over time. See, the th- so I was looking at some stats. There's a stat that came up by, um, by the National Institute of Retirement Security. It shows that 80% uh, women are 80% more likely to be impoverished in retirement. And that in millennials, there are four more women, around 60% of women in millennials are far likely to give their male counterparts the duties of financial responsibility exactly the financial versus the older generations was around 50 to 54 percent so it seems to be getting kind of worse with the younger generation well at least from that study specifically wow that's crazy i I hadn't heard about that but yeah so i did see this other study though that that talked about how women as investors are actually better at the buy and hold and the long-term strategy where male, uh, males tend to be more active traders. And I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I feel that makes sense because I think, well, men tend to be a little more irrational or far more high risk. So the vol- they'll pay attention more to the volatility, whereas the women will play in the storyline. You know, they'll invest in a position and they'll play the long game. Yeah, and I think both skill sets are needed, right? It's always- 100%. Uh, strategy 100%. versus tactic. Strategy, long term, tactical, short. 100%. One of the best ways to hedge short term positions is also to have long term positions. Because if you lose capital in the short term, you have long capital to offset those losses. So it's, there's a balance needed. So, you know, like uh, no matter what your gender is, you, there's a place for you in this market. There really is. There is. And I think back to a point you made earlier, I think the, the best place for new investors to enter the market would be. Um, to, to buy things they know. Uh, Peter Lynch, which is one of the most, uh, like one of the best fund managers of all time, ran the Magellan Fund. Uh, he always said, yeah, invest in the products you actually use because if you love that product, chances are a lot of other people do too. And um, now there's this new capital raising mechanism called Regulation A in the US. Reggae. Which is allowing like average people to buy into companies Um, that were previously, those types of financings were previously reserved for wealthy people, accredited investors only. And so now you can invest in that little widget that you love because guess what? They're on the internet raising money now. And so it's like you're the consumer and the investor. It's wonderful. Yeah, 100%. So it would be like for people, for a lot of the girls that love, let's say, food baking or love 
makeup. You know, they could buy a stake in L'Oreal, for example. You buy a stake in L'Oreal, and now you, because you're connected with the storyline of L'Oreal, you're more likely to follow the storyline, to analyze the company, and actually do your due diligence because you're putting your money somewhere you like to put it. It's a, it's a subject you like. You're going to follow it, and you're going to study it. For sure. Another good example is Revolve, Revol Revolve Clothing. Um, it's a clothing site for women. I remember when I started getting addicted to it, I'd call my girlfriends. I'm like, oh my God, I put in another Revolve order. And like you'd spend hundreds of dollars on clothes that you didn't necessarily need. And, uh, and then I was like, this would be an awesome investment. And it's turned out to be, I haven't made it personally, but it, it's been a great company to buy as a, as an investor. Wow. That's the book right here, right? One up on wall street. Yes, exactly. That's, this is, this is the book that everybody should read. And I think Jen, you touch base on the fact that people should be buying what they know. The question I have though, in particular, and this is where it gets blurred between investing and trading is there's a good old saying that goes around that says never fall in love with a stock. Right. So at what point do you think just from your experience, do you draw the line when it comes to investing to say, okay, maybe I should sell a position here. Maybe I should, you know, get rid of it, take my profits and, and, and move on to something else. It's such a hard question. Um, cause letting your winners ride is like one of the toughest things to do because it's so, you know, it's in human nature to just want to take money off the table. Um, but a lot of the gains on stocks, if you, you know, sometimes it takes like 10 years for a company, if you look on a chart to actually maximize its gains. So, um, you know, I haven't figured that one out because what can happen is these companies could start trading at really insane multiples, yeah. but they continue to go up. Like Amazon didn't make any money for like 15 years, but look at it now, it's over a trillion dollars biggest company in the world. Like Shopify also looked at it today. It's like on stilts, but the multiple on a stock like that is really, you can't get your head around it. Meaning like you can't compare it to like what an average stock in the same sector should trade at. So you can't use regular kind of logic around some of these big winners. So it becomes a psychology. It becomes being in the market experience, time, trial and error. <laughs> And that, that obviously takes, you know, a few years, right? And you, you, you had that with, you know, managing well, a lot of trading. Yeah. A lot, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of positions for sure. But yeah. you know, when, when you were managing that small cap fund there, um, I'm, like it's, it's pretty, it's really awesome and incredible, like three years of just having the best performing fund. So like, what was your investment philosophy there? And what like, are some of the companies? Yeah. What were some yeah. of the companies? If you, if you could well, share it with us. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that there were way more losers than winners, but the winners were like multi-baggers, like 3X, 5X, 10X. But to your point, like I traded a lot. I tried a lot of things. And I think like what, what your audience and, and average people that are just getting into the market, what I mean by like average, I just mean like newcomers, new retail investors is that don't expose yourself to a big positions. Like, like, invest a little bit of money, invest a hundred bucks. Yeah. That's 200 bucks. Like don't take on big positions because you'll learn by, by investing and trading yeah. and losing like anything in life. It's like that. So, I, you know, yeah. some of the positions uh, that we had were like a company called Descartes systems. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar company now, but we owned it for, for a long time. And, and simply what they do is they're like a logistics provider. So if you're trying to send a package 
um, or anything from say Asia to North America, it's got to go through, it's got to go through boat, plane, you know, train, automobile, I don't know, whatever, however it has to get there, Descartes takes a little slice, a little taxation on the way through from that entire trip. And they sell their software, or they, uh, their software is provided to all these multinational companies. And so there's a network effect, it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Um, another one's Boyd Auto Group. This was a company that does auto repair. And so they would buy um, these mom and pop auto repair shops. They would make them more efficient, um, get the EBITDA margins up, and then buy more of them, and then roll up and roll up and roll up. So I would say the main thing that made me and the fund and the investors the most money was finding a company that just did the same thing over and over and over again and just got better at it. They got well, scaling, at it. scaling yeah. the operation. Simple formula, rinse, wash, and repeat. Awesome. It's uh, especially now with small caps though. It's, um, you know, well, I know Nick talked about it, about cannabis, right? And that's pretty much where we got started. My first trade in the sector was Aurora Cannabis. And I, I rode that thing up to $14 before selling it and then saying, you know, maybe I'll buy some more. So um, what's interesting about, and I've been following Grit Capital for quite a while now, and uh, you guys have been in those sectors and other spaces as well. Um, cannabis is the hottest topic right now, especially in Canada and the US. Um, where do you think this is heading and why can't Canada figure out how to do it properly? <laughs> well, it, it turns out that it's like incredibly hard to grow uh, cannabis at, at scale and do it properly and do it cheaply. It's like unlike no different than other agricultural operations. And I think the thing that happened to cannabis was that you had a whole bunch of management teams that had never run companies before, never run public companies before. They overpromised to the marketplace. And unfortunately, a lot of the investment banks played and went along with it because they saw how much money they could make on fees. And so no one, no grown-ups were really at the table, if I can put it that way. Everyone was just in it for the fees and it got like wildly out of control, but it's no one person's fault. This is what happened when, when you have legislation that changes, a, a land grab and massive capital being thrown at something. You get, you know, some, some real companies and some fake companies being created. Um, they all got massively overvalued. Um, pretty much all of these professional investors knew this on the way up, but they're going to play the momentum because you can still make money. Yeah. Um, but now everyone has to grow up. You know, you see all these executives, whether it's Canopy, Aurora, all these guys that promise the sky, um, they can't handle it now on the way down. It's too difficult. It's a negative environment. They're getting yelled at by bankers, analysts, investors, yeah. and it's terrible and they're losing money. So what's going to happen here is you're going to get massive consolidation. You're going to get so many companies are going to die. And then so many opportunistic people are going to take advantage of that and buy the assets that are real. There's real estate that's real. Um, there's machinery that's real. Um, there's, there's some human capital that's real. Um, but you're just going to see consolidation. And long term, I think this sector trades at one times revenue, just like any other agricultural sector. Would you, would you consider the Canadian market more agricultural than the U.S.? Or would you consider the U.S. market the same? Because U.S. you can build a brand, whereas here you cannot. Yeah, here you cannot. There's rules about the packaging. Um, and so in the U.S., you have way more brand building yeah. and you can be more of a consumer-facing 
uh, thing. But still, the ones that have done that have still been in big trouble. Mad Men, that thing blew yeah. up. They were supposed to yeah. be like the consumer. That retail. they had, they sold, they had to, they had to pay off debt by selling cap uh, stocks. They had to give stock away in order to cover debt, and then they had to get more funding from GGP Gotham Green Partners because they were in trouble. That's because now I'm focused more on the U.S. sector in terms of some of my capital for uh, for marijuana. So I've been following, I don't, I just don't like the Canadian landscape anymore. The multiples, like you said, are crazy. The, the government is working way too slow compared to where we want the business to operate, but they can't because the, the market can't develop at the same speed. And then there's no branding. It, I just, the landscape is completely unlike what I thought it would be when I got in. When it, when it first started. Yeah. For sure. Especially from Canadian landscape, the U S landscape, I love it a lot more, you know, 10 times the population branding that the fact that nobody else could come in the market. Nobody you can't have big operators. You, all you have, it's like a chess game right now. Only the players on the board can operate. Can't have anybody else enter because of the federal legalization. Uh, then only people can actually, that can survive with cash or have a built up an actual operation. They can scale or else they're just, there's nothing else going on in the U.S. sector. So it's kind well, of like... That's, that's a really good point about the U.S. because of the rules, because um, it's not federally legal um, and the states have different rules. A lot of the big MSOs, which are like the big large cap companies, yeah. can't actually merge because they own... Like you have to divest of some of your uh, licenses and permits so the puzzle pieces don't each, really work. Yeah, each state, yeah. each state has to build its own operation. So yeah. to scale in the U.S. is also very complicated. Like True Leave doing fantastic in Florida. But True Leave has no other operation in any of the other states. So if they want to move elsewhere, they can't just build, produce more in the same state. They have to produce another facility in another state to be able to expand their brand. Or else they can open up a store, but they can only sell products to other companies. Right. So it's, the, it's a crazy landscape in the U.S. And like also the capital is completely dried up too. Yeah, right? exactly. So, uh, exactly. Um, you can't really go to the banks. You probably oh. overleverage yourself. So there's not uh, a lot of banks lending money. In You're not interest rates are high too. Uh, yeah, for that, for sure. And you're not generating any positive cash flow, so you can't really reinvest your own uh, money. Exactly. You pay for what's happening. So yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good industry right now, for sure. Cat, and uh, cat, cat, it doesn't help that CanTrust uh, basically filed for bankruptcy two well, weeks ago. There's I all, think. Yeah. So they got <laughs> caught growing illegally, right? So it, 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 there's a dark cloud on the cannabis space right now Very dark yeah time. and it's unfortunate because you know what the hedge funds that finance like in canada specifically a big portion of the big deals like they've been long gone from this space for a while and so who has been left holding the bag well that's main street that's retail people yeah. and 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 it's 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 really dangerous because like i always say this when the banks like rbc and cibc they then allow their uh analysts to cover these stocks it's like too late like the theme has passed and then you get these investment advisors at rbc calling like these you know little old ladies i like to say like selling them on these stocks when it's like so much riskier at that point yeah, yeah. it's you have really to, unfortunate. i think i think that now that sector you have to have a really long horizon or else in the short term you, you probably won't see any returns no way yeah you will not see you should stay yeah. clear there's more there's more pain to come yeah, exactly. You have to go along. But like the news is good that it is economic recession proof. People still sales going up, even though people are locked up. So like you, the demand is there and the demand is not going anywhere. It's a yeah, matter of just the, like some ancillary services like delivery is huge. Like delivery is taken off huge in California. There's a couple yeah. of companies now in Canada doing it. So if you can get into that, that piece of the value chain, that's, that's seeing the returns that that's great. 
Exactly. Um, let's talk about what's going on now, because I think this is sort of the, the biggest shift, uh, macroeconomics, uh, health crisis, you know, COVID-19 re- comes around, just uh, shuts down the entire economy. Um, and for those of us that are still working, like we're very fortunate um, and we're going to continue to kind of grow and do what we got to do. But for the regular person right now uh, that pretty much doesn't know what to necessarily do with their money, doesn't understand what is going to essentially happen from an economic standpoint, like what what is your take on this? Uh, and what have you learned, I guess, from the 08 recession uh, that you can pretty much share with our listeners uh, today? Yeah, I would say after 08, the market did rebound um, and things got better sooner than even the smartest people in the room were uh, expecting. So in what is going on here, this rapid shutdown of the economy, massive job losses, like 22 million in the US filing for jobless claims. Yeah, it's really scary to have that many people walking around who you know, it's like 40% of Americans don't even have any savings. They're living paycheck to paycheck and they're getting a $1,200 stimulus check from Trump. Like that's a very scary scenario. Having said that, the government this time around is pumping even more money than they pumped in uh, 10 years ago. And they will make sure that this thing does, we will come out of it in some form or another. Now, having said that, doesn't really help people in the immediate term. I think a place for people to look to make some extra money would be looking at being part of the gig economy. And what I mean by that is if you have like any sort of talents for doing things that can be sold online, um, whether that's like I was listening to this guy who had started like working on Fiverr and selling like his designs on Fiverr or like his voiceovers on Fiverr and he built up quite a bit, a bit, a big business. So I think it's the time to look at like, what other talents do you have that have some sort of value or currency in the marketplace? And how can you benefit yourself um, through those efforts getting out of it? But yeah, it's gonna be tough in the near term. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions from people on Instagram going, like, why is the market going up if the data keeps keeps being bad? And I have to keep reminding new investors that like the market, the people who control the market, like the large players, they discount all this stuff like quarters ahead. Like they're already thinking, okay, market data is going to be shit for like the next two, three quarters. They're not even caring about that. They're trying to figure out like, when is it going to start coming out of that? And like, has the maximum damage pretty much been done? Like if we're going to start opening doors again and restaurants and businesses again, then the data will start turning around. So the, the market always moves like two to three quarters ahead of the data. Data is backwards looking, market right. forward looking. Exactly. But it's interesting too, because China, China yesterday, I think, came out with their GDP number. Yeah. And from just my general understanding, anytime China releases a GDP number, that kind of ripples through the global economy just because of the way the global supply chain is set up. So 6.6, 6.6. Yeah, they contracted 6.6%. That's the first, that's the first quarter. Mm-hmm. We saw the next one. First time, first time since 1979, I think. So um, how, and again, I totally agree with the gig economy thing. Like that's what we're doing here too. I think it's extremely virtual important, economy, but, but, but for people to understand more just from like, you know, a money perspective, like what could that potentially mean to their, you know, if they don't necessarily grasp either one doing the gig economy thing or the side hustle and two understanding what money is, right? 
like what what are the possible like consequences if they don't take you know take action at this point in time like to start saving or like what specifically what are you asking so so like what should they be doing now to understand okay this might actually last longer than most people anticipate how to hedge whatever future can how to how can people start hedging their current scenario and the future outlook of whatever may happen exactly one like cut back on like any spending that's not necessary like go through your bank account like do you really need that netflix membership i don't know maybe you don't like you know 20 bucks a month is a lot of money for some people um you know like budget your groceries maybe you shouldn't be drinking as much as you're drinking alcohol is expensive like i think yeah they're still spending a lot on that i know that's kind of a necessity in a sense (laughs) yes exactly some people sane yeah. But yeah, like just learn to budget, like learn to use spreadsheets, like do the numbers and then think about saving. Think about like when things get back to normal, how much can you put away per month? Like yeah. what is a hundred dollars, like automatic withdrawals out of your account. Like, and I'm talking about, again, I don't want to presume that everybody has the ability to do this, but let's say you're making an income and you do have after spending uh, disposable income available. You got to, you got to play little tricks on yourself for forced savings. Like again, instead of buying those Nike shoes and those iPhones, like take a hundred dollars out of your account a month and put it into a savings account, maybe a robo advisor to, to average into the market. Because as the market's taken this 30 to 40% decline here, it will go back. The market always goes back. Yeah. It might take a year. It might take two years, might take three years, but it will go back. So there's no better time to get in than when it's taken one of these bloodbath dips, you know, like Baron Rothschild said, always buy when there's blood in the streets, even when it's your own, you know, would you be more, would you be more focused on tech though and cloud infrastructure? Like, like, because that's more like if my hedging positions for future outlook, I'm focusing more on like my, like cloud infrastructure companies, communication, technology based, because clearly tech is, and financial markets are still surviving and they're not really struggling very much. Yeah, I agree. Like 5G is going to be huge yeah. for that. Um, I think that Visa, I was looking at Visa. Visa is amazing. Like that company just always makes money. It doesn't matter how. Yeah. Just click, click, click. Little taxation, little fee here, there. Um, I think also some of the trading platforms, I was looking at interactive brokers, what a beautiful business online trading, you know, that's not going away anytime. Especially with people, people, people there's more and more retailers starting to enter the space. So. Oh yeah. Do it yourself. Investors, big yeah. theme. Um, I was looking at Wayfair versus Amazon. Oh. Wayfair is like a cheap, not cheap, but like affordable furniture delivered to the home. You know, I've been buying a couple things like a table for a hundred bucks, you know, Stuff like that. People are doing home renovations and like just cheap around the house stuff. Facebook marketplace. It's developing. Exactly. Um, Telehealth. 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 So I met a a company. I met uh, the CEO of a company about a month ago. Dan was away. I had invited you. was to um, forget what it was called. I have the CEO's card there. But my brother also works for a division that basically same similar type company, but it's more private. It's called Dialogue. They're in Montreal. They just signed a contract with Sun Life. So, you know, they're going to get controlled, you know, a lot of the insurance aspect of sunlight for healthcare and stuff like that. And especially what's happening now, if we go, we're going to go more in the cloud because now we don't have to travel to see our doctors. We communicate with doctors online. We can do everything online. And that whole sector is still heavily inefficient, uh, still paper-based. Just so I, that's one sector that has to make a huge transition over. 
and that's where I think there's a huge opportunity, which is why I'm interested in that health space. Yeah, totally. And in Ontario specifically, if you look at what um, they did about a month ago, the government, they've been resisting covering telehealth visits for um, people in Ontario for a long time because they thought that if they allowed it, then a lot of people would use it and their budgets would get, like they would balloon, uh, like just it would be too expensive. But what happened is COVID obviously forced this. So now they've allowed it. And um, we're actually hosting a conference in a week to talk about like, is this here to stay? Is this legislation here to stay? Because if that's the case, then, you know, you and I, we might not be going to our family doctors like very much ever again. Like we might just, you know, I use this app called Maple a couple of weeks back because yeah. I had a, a question about COVID. They're doing free COVID visits. I was able to see a doctor in literally like 30 seconds. Somebody just yeah. popped on there and I could talk with them. So this is- I and also like hospitals and a lot of people yeah. go to the hospital for their family doctor visits. Like it's a, there's like a concentration of germs and disease and it's like an awful place to go a hospital. It's not and a good idea. I, is it, do you believe that, like, I think the government should see that this is a huge cost reduction opportunity and, and at the same time, it's going to create a much more efficient system because you have to, every, you need more work, you need more of a human workforce to incorporate that because you're dealing with hospitals. Everybody has to come and see you. So there's a lot more different entry points. There's everything's still paper-based. So I, I, I see a much more advantageous opportunity for the government to transition over because it's going to save them a lot more money. And as tax dollars, we're wasting a lot of money on a system that's very weak, I think. And COVID uh, is kind of showing that. There's also a lot of data. Um, countries in Europe that had wait lists to see your family doctor that people would wait like, couple years to see their family doctor it was insane and so what they did was they introduced telehealth i forget i think it's germany or belgium um anyways don't quote me on the country but essentially yeah. what happened they introduced telehealth and then people stopped booking visits with their physical doctor um because they were just booking the physical doctor appointment to make sure they had an appointment even though they didn't actually have to see their family doctor so they stopped doing that and switched to telehealth and the wait times decreased massively so I agree with you. I think you get like physical cost savings, efficiencies. You can, you can, you can globalize the industry. So now I don't need yeah. to always communicate with somebody in Canada. If I need an expert in, in a different UK who can talk with me, I can just, the, the, you're, you're building an infrastructure for the health system where people can just connect through an infrastructure. Yeah, Rather I mean, having that, you would have, to pay. You would have yeah. to pay for that service because the government's not going to cover other doctors. In but other it, it simplifies the entire yeah. industry. That's just an idea, you know, just, yeah. So I'm definitely with you. I like that sector too. It's, yeah. it's, it's so interesting too. Cause like, it's like you said, Jen, it's like COVID forced a lot of things that were to be for lack of a better word that were kind of already broken. Right. Um, and this goes to, goes, goes back to like companies too, who are basically completely over leveraged in whatever space they were doing and now they're getting exposed. So, um, I think it's fair to say though, like this is the official shift from the industrial age to the information age, right? Technological. Yeah. Or technological too, right? The third, the third industrial revolution, they call it. The third. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think. Third, is it third or the fourth? It's the third. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we're all kind of just like wait what do we just what do we just talk about <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a forced uh it's a forced evolution for sure yeah um 
One, one last there, two last things actually. So um, being in the investment community, I think it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting place. I mean, Nick and I love it. You obviously love it as well, right? Who's the one guy that you kind of look up to and use that person as a mentor um, and kind of reference that person for every decision that you make, even in your business right now? Wow, that's a really... That's a really tough question. One mentor. Um, I don't think that there's one person, but like, I obviously love the gods of like, you know, Steve Jobs and like Elon Musk and the whole. The OGs. Yeah, the OGs and like the the different philosophy and don't think small, think big, because even if you fail, you're going to get somewhere better than if you thought small. And you know, I've been starting to think a lot more about the U.S. market and building a business in a bigger market um, than just staying in my own backyard. And and also like thinking about building a product that appeals to the masses, you know, as opposed to like operating in a very like niche, niche, niche situation. Um, you know, like Apple, Apple builds products for all types of people, wealthy people, average people, lower income people, like there's products for every type. Same you know, hopefully one day with Elon Musk as well, his vehicles will be uh, reachable by the masses. But yeah, I think, I don't know, there's not like one, I don't have like one mentor. I you don't, just I pick don't and choose, you know, like you kind of create your own little ideology of best characteristics of each individual and you kind of picture your own little uh, idea together. Exactly. Different gods for different subsectors yeah. that I'm exactly. Who's the Who's the craziest person you've interviewed? For for Great Cap in particular, and what was that experience like? Because um, I watched one full video and I was like, "Wow, I like this guy too." Which one was that? Ty, uh, Ty Lopez. He's oh, an Ty he's oh, an yeah. investor. He gets a lot of hate right now. I don't know why. <laughs> I haven't like checked back in with him in a couple of years, but I met Ty during the whole blockchain thing, yeah. and I interviewed him. I thought I was going to get like ten minutes with him. And he gave we you sat, Yeah, we sat for so long together that by the end of the interview, the sun had gone down. I was still wearing sunglasses. <laughs> and I was like, why is this guy giving me so much time? But it was, it was awesome. He's actually very well read. He's a very, um, he's really like a psychology guy. He loves like human psychology. Like, I think he, he actually tried to analyze me on the spot, like my <laughs> type. And I was like, dude, you're undressing me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like he, he, he's a guy that, and I, I personally like him because he's obviously, he's very successful. But when you look at back at what he's done, you know, it, it took him like 20 years to get to where he's at. And I find like, you know, that's just part of the process. You get that big, people start hating on you. They see that Lambo video of him in his garage that went viral and everyone just shits on him because he's like flaunting what he's got. But like when you really d- dig into somebody like that, I find like there's, there's like there's a lot of knowledge in, in his head and he's, a, he's an investor, right? Their perspective. Well, you gotta love the hustle. Like it's the same with Gary Vee. Like I love Gary Vee. I look at Gary Vee and every day he's like live on Instagram talking to the masses. And like, I think that his intent at the end of the day, like the guy has made so much money, he could hang it up tomorrow. Is like, he actually cares deeply about the people that he's helping. 
and the motivation he's giving them and that energy. And I think, especially during this time, like I turn him on just to hear the gospel. Like I I don't, you know, some people call these guys kind of like snake oil salesmen and all that. Well, guess what the placebo effect is? Placebo effect is when you literally take something that has nothing in it, but you actually end up having like a positive result. Like with medication, they do these studies, no medication, placebo. And people get better on placebo. So I kind of think of these guys as like motivational placebo. Like your environment, just, what, you, what you surround yourself with, the, the noises you surround yourself with, the things you yeah. listen to, the people you interact with you, it amplifies your own desires. So if you want a better outlook, if you want to make more money, if you want to invest, if you want to hustle, having that around you just amplifies that. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not going to get rich by listening to Gary Vee all day, but if you start applying some of the things he's suggesting – you know, perhaps you will build wealth nest egg for yourself over a 20 year period, but it doesn't happen overnight, man. That guy was hitting YouTube talking about Chardonnay. Yeah. Why the wine library? He was, he's, I I believe he's the first YouTube actual channel to be created on YouTube, right? One of the first. Yeah. Yeah. He started that like 10, 15 years ago. He started a lot when it started YouTube. 2009. And it's so funny. That's like a perfect example, like a recession or a crisis happens and then a star or like somebody just, you know, 10 years later becomes, you know, I, I find him fascinating. Gary. He's just so direct and I, he just swears all the time. He just, he speaks his mind. I love it. Yeah. And he doesn't care what people think. No. Like, he put up a post yesterday that was like, have empathy for other people, but don't care what they say, you know? And I think that that's so true. So yeah, don't let anybody hold you back. What are the one, what are the few words, and we'll wrap this up here, but what are like the few words that you want to let our listeners know that they should be living by in this new world that we're in right now? I'd say educate, educate yourself. Um, I would say figure out a way to be able to set some money aside for yourself for the long run. Because again, just like how investing in yourself and being like a Gary Vee and taking 20 years to become an overnight success it might take 20 years to build up a nice egg, egg, uh, nest egg for yourself, but why don't you do it in a way that like interests you along the way? Like we were discussing, like invest in those companies you love, be passionate about it. Passion will drive you to make better decisions, I think. In every landscape, there's an opportunity. There's always an opportunity. Yep, every problem, there is a potential solution. So focus on that. So, so Jen, where, where can they find you? Because we want to get grit capital out there as well. Um, you guys have a very big following, but I think everyone who's listening to this podcast needs to know who you guys are. So where can they find you and what other events you guys have coming up soon? Yeah, our home is at, at grit capital on Instagram. That's where all of our, um, our friends, family, uh, our whole community is at. And our next event is going to be on the 29th of April. We're going to be talking telehealth. We actually have a huge Silicon Valley $1.5 billion company that's going to be presenting. We also have the chief marketing officer for Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the biggest private um, healthcare clinics in the U.S. It's going to be really kind of U.S. focused. Um, But yeah, you guys can check it out. We're going to be putting up the link soon and uh, you can uh, listen in and learn about that that growing industry. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Jen. This yeah, was, thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I think you. it was some really good material here, so I'd love to share with my, uh, my community. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this madness uh, stronger than we came into it, basically. Absolutely. So and hopefully, uh, 
hopefully we'll retouch soon. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks, guys. All right, John. Take care. Stay safe. Ciao.